Welcome to Veg Out, Toronto's vegetarian podcast, where we talk about all things veg in the GTA. We come to you virtually from our homes and we are heard on CJRU 1280 AM Campus Community Radio. We are part of VegTO, a nonprofit that inspires people to choose a healthier, greener, and more compassionate lifestyle through plant-based living. My name is Jen, and I'm joined today by my co-host Sweta. Hi, Sweta. Hi, Jen. <laughs> And today we will also be joined by our guest, Dr. Andrea Palenko, a research scientist at Faunalytics. And in particular, we're going to be chatting about a recent research report put out by Faunalytics called Bringing Back Former Vegans and Vegetarians, an Obstacle Analysis. And this research looks into identifying the barriers some vegans and vegetarians face that ultimately led to them giving up on their diets, and what might be some ways that we can support this group to venture back. Now, before we start our conversation with Andrea, just wanted to let you know about a few events coming up that you might be interested in. The first is that Canada's largest plant-based event is coming to Toronto, yay. The Planted Expo is um, gonna be held April 29th and 30th at the Toronto Entercare Centre. There's gonna be over 200 vegan food and lifestyle businesses along with numerous speakers from around the globe. And it's all focused on plant-based living, so that's great. Uh, and you can go to plantedlife.com for more info and ticket uh, details. Uh, it's something that I'm hoping I can get a chance to because I want to sample all of the food, particularly vegan desserts. That's what I like to sample the most of. Yummy, yummy. <laughs> and uh, the other event just to, to mention is that the Wishing Well Sanctuary is hosting their second annual family festival. And that's going to be on Sunday, May 7th from 10 to 3 at the Wishing Well Sanctuary, which is located in Bradford, Ontario. They have 50 plus vendors, tra tractor rides, a chance to meet the animals and all sorts of activities. Uh, entrance is $5 and uh, children ages three and under free. So great for families. Uh, and you can go to the Wishing Well Sanctuary's Facebook page to, to get more information on that. And uh, I'm hoping to get a chance to make it there because I just want to meet the animals. <laughs> yes. I want to say that that sanctuary is uh, especially good for us non-driving folks because you can take Go Transit up to there and then from the station to there, it's uh, either um, a short cab ride or Uber ride or however you want to get there or or even a bike ride. Oh, that's good to know, because I wasn't sure how I was going to get there. So. <laughs> yeah. so now I'd like to introduce our guest, Dr. Andrea Polenko, who is a trained welfare scientist with a PhD from the University of Guelph, who is now conducting social science research at Phonolytics. So welcome, Andrea. So excited to have you join us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. So before we dive into the research, I did just want to ask you, um, just, I just want to take a few minutes to ask you if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself in terms of what led you to pursue a career in animal advocacy. Yeah, great question. So I was a vegetarian since high school for animal welfare reasons, and then I didn't really think about it too deeply until the end of undergraduate for myself. So I did my undergrad in psychology. I really enjoyed research. 
So I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. Um, so as I was looking up what kind of things I can do for my future life, I knew I wanted to make an impact mm-hmm. for animals. Um, so then I discovered animal welfare science, which is a program at the University of Guelph. Um, so I applied there. I did my master's in that program. So my master's was focused on abnormal behaviors in fur-farmed mink. So in case you're not aware, uh, mink in cages display abnormal behaviors, um, such as like pacing back and forth. Sometimes it can be tail biting. Um, It's a huge welfare issue, of course. So that's what my master's thesis focused on. And then I got an opportunity to stay in the same lab um, to do dissertation, which which was on a similar topic on Mm -hmm. abnormal behaviors in laboratory monkeys. So again, Monkeys in cages will perform things like pacing back and forth, as well as um, self-biting and self-directed behaviors um, that reflect poor welfare, of course. So that's what my dissertation focused on, um, some pretty heavy stuff. So it was actually halfway through my PhD that I went vegan, Mm -hmm. that I did that transition. Um, So it was actually a YouTube talk by Gary Francione. Mm. Um, that made me turn instantly. So um, his talk was about the hypocrisy of vegetarianism. And for me at that time in my life, hearing that worked for me. So everybody mm-hmm. has a different, you know, story about what made them go vegan. For me, right. it was that particular scenario. Um, but yeah, so once I heard that talk, I was halfway through my PhD. And of course, going vegan, my ethics completely changed. So doing my dissertation, um, which was heavily welfareist based, and then mm-hmm. going vegan after made me uh, think about it a lot. I had, I definitely struggled afterwards. I did finish my PhD, um, but it was really, really hard for me to continue mm-hmm. to do it, even though I wasn't doing anything like, um, like no, I wasn't doing like biomedical testing on monkeys mm-hmm. or anything. I was just looking at their behavior in these facilities. It still really, you know, affected me. Um, But anyways, I was really fortunate to find an actual career in animal protection during the last year of my PhD at Faunalytics. So I made this switch from animal welfare science to now social science um, for my career. And it's it combines both of my passions, which is um, animal advocacy and research. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't even know programs like that existed, like animal welfare science. Jen, did you know about this? No. And I went to Guelph. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, yeah. University of Guelph has um, a really strong um, veterinary school. So because of that, they have like an animal welfare program. And then UBC also has like another strong uh, animal welfare science program. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. It's not specific to Guelph. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now that you're at Phonolytics, for our listeners that might not know what Phonolytics is, um, maybe you can tell us more about the type of work that you and your colleagues do at Phonolytics. Yeah, so at Faunalytics, we are a research-based organization. Our mission is to empower animal advocates with data and research to improve the decision-making, which in turn contributes to uh, reducing suffering and saving animal lives. So at Faunalytics, we conduct original research studies. So these studies can be anywhere from simply surveying people about their attitudes and beliefs towards animals to studies where we interview people who work at animal advocacy organizations to kind of understand the challenges that they face. Um, So most of our research does focus on a U.S. population, but we also have um, a few studies that are international as well. So we have done studies that focus on Canada, India, Brazil, and China. 
So in addition to our original research, we also have um, what we call a library. So if you head over to our website, we have summaries of over 4,000 peer-reviewed research articles related to pretty much any animal topic you can think of. So for example, rather than reading a scientific paper yourself on a topic that you're interested in, you can go to our website and read a summarized version of it. So this will save you time and in a lot of cases money because mm-hmm. um, yeah, if you download an original research paper, paper, often it's behind a paywall unless you have an affiliation with um, a university or a college. So we have amazing uh, volunteer writers who summarize these peer-reviewed papers for us and then we put them on the website and they're written in a way that are easy to understand. Mm-hmm. We try to minimize the amount of scientific jargon that goes in them. And in addition, the last thing I'll mention at uh, Phonolytics that we do is we also have infographics and fundamentals that provide advocates with an overview of specific animal topics. So for example, our latest fundamental created by our content director, uh, Carl, basically looks at the ways in which animal justice, as well as other forms of social justice are connected. And this is just to provide uh, um, advocates with a way of knowing how to be a bit more holistic with their advocacy. Yeah, wow. Uh, I've I've gone to the website, I've signed up for the newsletter. So I get all the like, (laughs) the latest, and it's such an amazing resource. And Mm -hmm. even if you just want some data on numbers, it's just right there. So uh, I find it a very useful resource. So So I guess now let's get into (laughs) the research paper that focuses on bringing back vegans and vegetarians. Maybe we can start by talking about like what was the main goal, the the Mm -hmm. research question that you were trying to answer and and how did your team go about trying to answer this? Basically, um, in the literature, there has yet to be sort of a deep qualitative understanding as to why people give up a vegetarian or vegan diets. And so by qualitative, what I mean is like considering people's reasons in their own words. So understanding why people give up a veg diet um, can then help advocates find ways to help people stick to a plant-based diet and also perhaps even help bring people back into the community who have who have previously lapsed. So that's why we uh, did this type of study. And what population were you looking at uh, in terms of asking this question? Mm-hmm. So... This data comes from um, two previous studies that we launched. One was in 2014, one was in 2021. And in those two studies, um, they were run for different reasons, which I won't go into, but we had questions in there that were able to identify uh, people who had indicated that they had abandoned a vegetarian or a vegan diet. So uh, both of these studies were primarily based in the U.S. We did have some Canadian participants, but most of them were U.S.-based and So anyways, with these two studies, we were able to identify around a thousand people who had indicated that they abandoned a veg diet. Mm. Um, 89% of them were lapsed vegetarians. 11% were lapsed vegans. And so again, when we ran those surveys um, for these group of people, we had specific follow-up questions. So we basically asked them, you know, using your own words, can you please um, tell us why you're no longer vegan or vegetarian? Um, Can you Please tell us any barriers you had when you were on that plant-based diet. Um, what was the main reason you stopped eating it? And as well as a question about like, what would you need to come back to eating uh, vegetarian or vegan? So it was actually my colleague, uh, Connie, who was a lead researcher for this project. And she was the one who read through all of these responses. And wow. then, um, yeah, it was her job to look um, to do something called a qualitative analysis, where you basically just try to find themes among all these different responses. 
Wow. And I guess in terms of the results, what were some of the most common barriers that people mm-hmm. faced uh, in terms of deciding that they were no longer going to stay on their vegetarian or vegan diet? Yeah. So she, uh, Connie, found eight main reasons as to why people abandoned a vegetarian or a vegan diet. So I'll I'll go with the top three um, just to keep this nice and succinct. So uh, the top three reasons had to do with dissatisfaction, health and accessibility. So, for mm-hmm. example, almost 50 percent of the participants said that they quit a veg diet because they were just dissatisfied with uh, vegan or vegetarian foods. So, for example, this could be anywhere from having cravings for animal products, being bored with plant-based food, or just feeling hungry. Mm-hmm. Another 30% said that they stopped eating um, vegan or vegetarian because of their health. So this means that they either felt unhealthy or they were actually given medical advice to go back to eating um, animal products. And then another 25% said that they stopped eating plant-based because of accessibility reasons. So this means um, having limited access to vegan or vegetarian options in stores, restaurants, and as well as it just being too complicated for these folks to Mm. have the time and resources to prepare these meals at home. I want to recommend your Facebook Live, which is now uh, posted on YouTube, which is what I watched about this Mm. time, because you went through all this in detail. So if anyone wants to know that, we'll put that in links. Uh, I found found it uh, quite interesting, this uh, dissatisfaction with vegan food, which you mentioned about half the people said that that was an issue. And um, within that, you had said that being bored and uh, being bored with the food and being feeling hungry all the time were issues. And you had also mentioned that it had to do a lot with um, just lack of knowledge about vegan food. Can you talk a little bit about this, this lack of knowledge? Um, Yeah, that was really interesting for me personally, because it was cited as a common struggle, yet it wasn't actually the most crucial obstacle to overcome to coming back to eating vegetarian veganism. So for example, we also asked people, you know, like, what would it take for you to come back? So even though 50% of them said, well, I struggled or I was dissatisfied with the types of food I was eating, this wasn't actually um, a strong reason for them to come back to eating vegetarian. So we found that it was actually like what was more important was having um, better access to plant-based foods, as well as having more time um, and resources to prepare vegan meals at home. So I thought that was interesting in itself. So yeah, and you know what? What's really important to overcome that is just having a strong social support network that are full of vegetarian or vegan people. Because um, as an animal advocate, like you are, you you are there to support other people, right? So if you know somebody in your life who has lapsed or is struggling on their diet, just find out what's going on. Because you can be a role model and perhaps, you know, fill that gap of knowledge that they're currently lacking, whether if they're bored with recipes and they just need something new to cook, perhaps you can provide them with those tips. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the the issues that you were talking about had to do with this lack of knowledge in mm. some roundabout way, whether it's concerns around health or accessibility or thinking even that vegan food costs too much because that was one of the issues, right? Yeah. And, and so that just has to do with lack of knowledge because, well, vegan food actually doesn't cost that much. Maybe you're mm-hmm. buying, you know, like the day of cheeses or whatever these supplemental foods that we eat are. And so I almost feel like people... The, the biggest advice to give is prepare, 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 mm-hmm. prepare, prepare, like think about this for like five months and then go vegan. And I know you're super excited and you want to do things for the animals right now. But I feel like if folks do things the wrong way, they, they might try it once, 
but they might not try it again. And so if you're going to do it, then then spend that time because that was one of, the, again, the issues that you had talked about resources and time being mm-hmm. one of the resources, just, just figuring things out. So I feel like to all the activists out there and uh, <laughs> anyone that's trying to go vegan as well, is like just spend a lot of time thinking about it before you actually take that step. And yeah, and feel free to ask questions if you are listening to this and you're considering going back to veganism or you haven't made that switch from vegetarianism to veganism. Definitely reach out to other vegans you know in your real life or even like online communities. I know there's like Facebook groups of just vegans and vegetarians. Like they're more than friendly or more than welcome to help support you if you have questions. Mm-hmm, for sure. And I'm, I was just going to throw this out there to all of us thinking about what some of these barriers were, uh, do some of them resonate with you in terms of your own experience? Um, even at the time, whenever that transition happened? For me, I think the biggest barrier I had, it might sound weird, is motivation. Um, mm. Like I felt like I'm a vegetarian, like I care about animal welfare, which I did. Um, so I think for me, I just didn't realize how much more of an impact I could have um, from a vegan standpoint, I guess maybe I think it was for my personal case, I was just so wrapped around the welfareist frame. Like that's what I was trained in mm-hmm. formally as my education. Um, everyone around me in that program was like a strong believer in welfareism. Like I never had someone challenge me on those ethics. I never had the animal rights perspective presented to me until I saw that YouTube by Gary Francione. Um, So I think for me, it was for some reason, just like maybe lack of awareness of the other position. Mm-hmm. And you, Sweda? No, I don't know. I don't. Um, <laughs> I feel like going vegan for me was kind of straightforward. I had this weird thing with chocolate where I kept eating milk chocolate for uh, I don't know what it was, like maybe a year. But besides that, it was like an I was one of those overnight vegans. And I think one of the things that made it easier was the fact that I was vegetarian before that. But um, in my house, like meat was, well, we were allowed meat in certain ways, but not other ways. Like my mom was vegetarian and having an Indian background and eating Indian food. It's like veganism is quite accessible, especially with the type of Indian food that my family ate. Um, So that was, yeah, it was not really that big of an issue for me. So um, I guess I did not, none of these things resonated. It wasn't much of an issue for me. I'm not saying I didn't have like the missing of this and that and the other, but yeah. Uh, what about you, Jen? Yeah, it's funny. I I felt like I related to so many of these <laughs> and that was such a long time ago. And to think that these are still barriers today, or at least, you know, when these studies were done. So for me, I, I did it alone. I didn't, I barely knew how to cook. Like anything that I had just went from the freezer into the oven. So like using a recipe was something that like was hard. Um, even knowing what to buy, like I felt like I had no knowledge and I just, I was just going through the checkbox. I'm like, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> um, you know, I had a pre-existing iron deficiency that did not help when I, <laughs> when I started. So all of these things. I feel like my iron deficiency went better after I became vegan because it was after I became vegan that I found out about this link between uh, vitamin C and iron. Uh, I didn't know about that before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just thought it, it was just curious because for me, it was like, 
mm-hmm. almost 20 years ago when I went vegetarian and just to think like, oh, these are still barriers today and we, we still have some work to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess sort of going next, we, you'd um, the study had asked what would it take for this group of former vegetarians and vegans to come back? What were some of the answers to that question? Right. Yeah. So this one, there were a lot of varied reasons. So 30% said improved accessibility would help. So this means um, just having greater availability and selection of veg products in stores, restaurants, fast food chains, in addition, just having more time to plan, shop for, and prepare meals at home. Um, 15% people said motivation and willpower is what they would need. Another 15% said satisfaction with food and having a good support system. Mm. So, and um, Connie actually did a word cloud. So again, remember people typed out these responses. um, And so she found like within the word cloud, the most common words mentioned for this question was motivation, support, Mm. recipes, time, money, and options. So Mm. this kind of just goes to show that um, if you want to help someone come back to resuming a vegetarian or a vegan diet, it's going to take a combination of different needs, not just like solely meeting one requirement. It's going to be a combination of different things. Right. And I guess sort of based on these studies, because I think there were some other like correlations uh, mm. that were done and certain factors sort of correlated with other factors um, in terms of barriers. Uh, but what would be and I know we've touched on some of these already, but what were the recommendations for animal advocates that what what we can do better to help support our former vegans and vegetarians to consider coming back and possibly obtain their original veg goals? Yeah, so we definitely recommend providing them with motivation, recipes, and health support so that they can come back to eating plant-based. So based on our own research and other studies, we know that just focusing on health motivations isn't actually a good predictor of someone staying vegan long-term. So this just suggests that um, lapsed vegans need to increase their focus on animal protection as a motivation if possible. So just avoid having health as a sole motivator. Like it could still be a motivation, of course, but Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. can't be like the only one because that's not a good predictor of staying vegan Mm long-term. I believe it was Colleen Patrick Goudreau who said that people that go vegan for health, they they might feel a little bit more tempted to cheat or they do cheat. Whereas people that go vegan for the animals, it's such it's such a different concern that they're not going to cheat on that or they're not going to kind of back out of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, we have another recommendation. Um, accessibility was something that commonly came up, right? So as advocates, there's definitely room for us to support improved accessibility of vegan foods. So this can be anywhere from, you know, advocating for an increase in vegan options in restaurants and food banks to um, engaging in citizen lobbying, where you basically sit down and talk to a member of parliament about the importance of transforming our food system to subsidize more vegetables, fruits, and legumes mm. rather than animal products. So there's actual actually an organization that does this. They used to be called Nation Rising, but they just changed their name. They're called... Uh, Canadians for Responsible Food Policy. So they do that type Mm. of citizen uh, or volunteer-based lobbying. I've actually participated in one of their campaigns a few years ago. Um, Definitely recommend checking them out since they're Canadian. 
Um, and then we also just, you know, another recommendation I'll last say is that if you're an advocate, just, you know, be very kind, patient and supportive to this mm-hmm. person that, you know, who is, you know, made me lapsed um, and wants to or you want to encourage them to come back to being vegan or vegetarian. Um, again, try to connect them with, you know, events going on in the community. So, for example, Jan, you mentioned those two things happening at the beginning. Um, that would be a great opportunity to take somebody Maybe if, even if they're vegetarian, right? Like take them mm-hmm. to those um, events just to show them or just to be supportive um, and a good role model of like, you know, who a vegan is. Mm-hmm. One of the things I found really surprising in your recommendations was about the age, because I feel like we're always trying to capitalize on the youthful exuberance of, uh, mm-hmm. of these kids that, that like want to do social justice causes. But that's not necessarily the the best way to go because uh, you had mentioned again in that um, that YouTube video that folks that are 35 and over tend to be better targets. And then you also said that women in particular um, end up having a more positive experience with the veg lifestyle. And so these are the folks that we should be targeting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I agree. That is interesting because I have, yeah, for this particular data set, I think it was specifically looking at the barriers and I think it was like women in that age group just happens to experience less barriers when they happen to be um, on a plant-based diet. So that's why those we made that recommendation. I think that makes sense too, because if we're talking about the preparedness of people and the lack of knowledge, um, I think when you're at at the age of like 18 and you're making decisions, you're maybe not thinking through them fully. I know as an 18 year old, I mean, that is the time when I'm a vegan, but I didn't necessarily think through these things fully, (laughs) right? Uh, But as a 35 year old, you're like more weighing your options and looking into things in detail. So it makes sense that you would make a more informed decision. And then that information would come around to help you stay vegan in the long run. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I also like your your buddy system recommendation. Mm-hmm. To, to follow up on that, the report also made some recommendations for specifically for former vegan and vegetarians as to what they can do. Uh, so maybe we can just elaborate for them what would what would they what would be helpful for them if they want to pursue the a diet again. Yeah, absolutely. So health concerns were you know again common reason. So this is going to seem obvious, just talk to your doctor (laughs) or a nutritionist. Like we're pretty lucky to be in Canada. We're seeing a doctor isn't going to drain our bank account. So please set up an appointment, get your blood levels checked out. Any, you know, concerns you might have about any kind of vitamin, you know, check out a doctor. And also um, there's really great resources online about just how to stay healthy on eating plant-based. We all know that. Um, So if you know somebody who's, again, considering or struggling going plant-based just provide them with these resources i can't remember um there's this dr Mc- michael mcgregor he has a really good website i think it's nutritionfacts.org yeah, michael gregor michael gregor yeah thank you i think the canadian food guide is a really great tool now as well because you can go to your physician with that and say i want to follow this diet yes exactly yeah they cut out dairy by a significant amount i remember which is great. Yeah, that was a big move. <laughs> Encouraging yeah. for sure. I was going to say, we also have a recommendation about the um, Sweta mentioned about the buddy. So mm. that basically, um, if you are considering going back to plant-based or starting plant-based, definitely have someone else in your life that does this um, goal with you. So it can be someone in the same household, maybe a sibling, a parent, your partner, or you know, just a friend. And if you don't know anyone that could 
that can do it with you. Again, joining online communities is super valuable here. So there's the program Challenge 22, which I'm sure um, both of you and the listeners, some listeners may know about it. Um, you basically sign up to do this, like, I can't remember, is it actually 22 days or 30? Right, 22, right? I'm not aware <laughs> of that one, but I'm aware of other oh, okay. challenges, like the the um, the Toronto Vegetarian Association. Um, Veggio has a, a 21-day veg challenge. Okay. Yeah, so I feel like there are there are a lot of sort of um, similar challenges like yes. that. So find whichever one works. Yes. And those challenges are great because at least the one I'm thinking of, Challenge 22, they actually, um, you get a mentor assigned. Mm. So it's through that mentor that you, they kind of provide that social support in terms of if you have questions about recipes, any like um, apprehensions you may have, um, that's what your mentor is there for. Yeah. And, you know, Jen, you were asking about, did any of these uh, things resonate with me? And I didn't, I don't have issues with, um, with the vegan diet and staying vegan, but what I do have issues with still right now is like staying healthy and staying vegan. And I feel like this buddy system. So me and my partner, we are encouraging each other to stay healthy. And I find that that helps. And when one of us tanks, the other one tanks as well. And I know that when we've lived with roommates who don't eat like whole food plant-based, we tend to eat less of that as well. Like I look back on my mm. diet in those days and I'm like, oh my goodness, I used to eat all that junk. <laughs> so um, it, it's, it's the same sort of thing, right? Like helping keep you um, in line or focused or however you want to think of it, that buddy system can really help. And I guess thinking about it in terms of maybe more of a gradual process and Sweda, you were talking about this in terms of planning, but even just like literally one meal a week, <laughs> plan for it, get that like settled. And then, you know, if you're cooking for your family or for your partner and, and that seems okay. And it's not so overwhelming to do everything all at once. That might also be something that could help instead of, you know, <laughs> facing it all, all at the same time and, and hoping for the best. So, okay. So that's been a great discussion about that, bringing back vegans and vegetarians paper. Uh, but maybe we can turn to looking at what are some other studies that are going on at Faunalytics? Andrea, what are you working on and what might be coming down the pipeline that we can look forward to? Um, yeah, I can talk about what I just finished a couple of months ago because um, oh, that was sure. a big project. Yeah. So we did a project where I basically interviewed 13 organizations. This one was a bit more international based. Um, so I basically asked these groups what they were doing to try to reform animal agriculture subsidies. So we wanted to understand uh, what were the barriers and perhaps what were some successful tactics into actually, um, again, reforming animal agriculture subsidies. So what I mean by reforming is kind of trying to shift them towards um, plant-based, um, not necessarily trying to get rid of them altogether, because as we learned through our interviews, um, the immense political power that big ag has over mm -hmm. subsidies is really influential, and it's going to be really difficult to get um, a government in any country to kind of just um, completely get rid of those subsidies altogether. So we're definitely seeing some success in the argument of shifting subsidies from animal agriculture to plant-based. And again, I mentioned this organization earlier. Earlier, They were called Nation Rising. Now they're called Canadians for Responsible Food Policy. So they were one of the groups we interviewed. They are Canadian and they do this type of work. So I'm going to recommend checking them out again because I think this kind of work is super important. I'm all for different kinds of advocacy. So we need all kinds of boots on the ground as well mm -hmm. as people doing uh, lobbying to shift 
our food policies. So yeah, that's what the report is on. So if you're interested in learning about subsidies, um, definitely check that out. It's on our website. Um, subsidies are super complicated. I learned so much. Um, I watched the, uh, I watched a lot on your YouTube channel as well. And I thought the, the connection between the energy sector and mm. agricultural sector and those subsidies, like that, that was very interesting. So again, we'll put a link for that. And I think that's the one that you were on. I don't think you were on the other one and I got things confused. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to recommend uh, one more of the studies, the one that uh, you have about advocacy tactics and which oh, ones yeah. are the most effective for diet change. And in there, you talk about protests and protests, people that doesn't seem to affect people's decision or it negatively affects people's decision to go vegan. I found that like quite shocking because we do a lot of those. I mean, I don't know <laughs> if there's a distinction there between protests and demonstrations because there was mm -hmm. I think, a distinction between disruptive and non-disruptive protests. And I don't know yeah. if that was the distinction, but uh, again, so surprising a lot of these um, facts and figures that are coming out of this. Yeah. I mean, that could be a podcast episode on its own and I would yes. you know, <laughs> love to talk about that more, but I'll try to keep it as short as possible. So uh, that was a study where we compared, you know, 15 different tactics, uh, disruptive and non-disruptive protests were two of those 15. Um, so this was an experiment where people either saw advocacy or they didn't see advocacy. And with the experiment, we actually found negative um, effects of both types of protests on people's behaviors. So what I mean by that is um, if they were a meat eater and they saw a video of a disruptive protest, this actually caused them to eat more animal products versus meat eaters who didn't see any animal advocacy at all. Um, so that's just one little example. And then I think we also found some negative impact on petition signing in the group of people that identified as flexitarian or vegetarian. So this just means that if they saw a video of a protest, they were less likely to sign a petition right after versus uh, flexitarians and reducitarians who didn't see any advocacy. So that's where our set of recommendations came from. So again, that project was based on mostly um, diet change. So that's where our re recommendations come from. I will say that we know from other social justice movements the impact that protests can have on actually creating systemic change. So I think when we released that report, um, it was a bit controversial and like <laughs> You know, we're trying to clarify, like, we mean these sets of recommendations are about diet change. And but of course, we know that people um, do protests or engaged in protests for other reasons. Right. So, yeah. And also like um, creating an awareness. That's mm -hmm. another factor that maybe downstream would yeah. possibly have an effect. Yes. Um, yes. And there's a really nice infographic for that paper of yours um, on phonolytics. It really shows all the different uh, tactics that you looked at. I think you're talking about the one Karen made, perhaps. Is it like a little cartoon drawing? Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, that is Karen. Uh, she's great. <laughs> she, she's on our board. Yeah, so I thank you so much for sharing all this research at phonolytics and, and the work that you've been doing, Andrea. It's been very great to have you. Very informative to learn not only about what obstacles are preventing people from maintaining their veg diets, but also it's important for us to understand what they need to come back and how we can best support and help this group achieve their veg goals in the future. So I really hope we can have you back again in the future and you can tell us more about the studies <laughs> that you have. I feel like there's just so many that we can <laughs> each spend an, an episode talking about. Absolutely. Um, I would love that. Yeah. So we look forward to talking to you again.
Yeah, thank you both so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And you've been listening to Veg Out, Toronto's vegetarian podcast. You can listen to past episodes on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, as well as Stitcher. Remember to subscribe where you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Matt Judge for our theme song. And until next time, Veg, veg Out. out. Nice. I like that.